This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This week, the Clarets are on an international break. So we sat down with a very special guest. This is the Known and Ever podcast. Hello and welcome to this very special edition of the Known and Ever podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Bromley, and joining me this week is a man who needs no introduction, but we're going to give him one anyway. Welcome to the show, author, journalist, broadcaster, strategist, mental health campaigner, campaign director, former Downing Street press secretary and Labour director of communications, podcaster and Burnley fan, Mr Alistair Campbell. Alistair, welcome to the show. Thank you, Natalie. Glad you kept, you saved the last till the end there. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That's the main one. That's the one that we all want. Um, let's not waste any time. Let us dive straight in there and let's take you right back to the very beginning. And tell us how on earth a young lad born and raised in Keithlake, West Yorkshire, ended up as a Burnley fan. Well, there were a lot of Burnley fans in Keithley, um back then. I mean, I was born in 1957. Uh, I think my first game I was four, uh, so we were reigning league champions. And if you think about it, you know, what was nearby, Bradford, Leeds, Halifax, mm. Huddersfield. I mean, there was, a, there was you know, there were a lot of football clubs around. My dad was a vet in Keithley. He, he wasn't, um, he, he didn't support Burnley the way I do, but he was, uh, his team in Safari, he was from the Hebrides, but he was really a party Thistle supporter because he was at Glasgow University when he was a vet student. And, um, but we just all, you know, we like football from a very early age. And so, we, you know, one week we'd go to Bradford, we'd go to Burn, we'd go to Blackburn, we'd go to Burnley. We went, we went, we just went to football. But I mm-hmm. sort of fell in love with Burnley from the word go. And then there's a guy called Peter Laughlin who, um, <laughs> he's actually, he, he's basically called Burnley Pete. Uh, but he, and he, he, he's, um, the son, his, his dad was a doctor in Keithley. Uh, Paddy Laughlin, he was a very good friend of my dad's. And when my dad couldn't take me to the games, Pete used to take me. And I've been seeing Peter. I mean, he never, ever, ever misses a game home and away. Um, I mean, obviously, we're all missing games at the moment. But he, so I, I've seen Pete all my life. I've seen him at away games. And we always have the same conversation. Uh, and it's become a joke because both my parents are dead, but we still say, how's your mum? How's your dad? 
as you do. <laughs> so yeah, so that was that was how really just you know it, it it was just I don't know I just fell in love with Burnley. Oh, that's, do you know, there's something about our club and there's something about our town that that happens to. Everybody we speak to, it's, you know, they went to Turf Moor usually with their dad or their uncle or another family member. And they just, there's something about our club that gets you and gets under your skin and just doesn't let go. Um, I was looking earlier on at, at obviously, um, just the the decades of, of, of football that you've seen at, at Turf Moor in your time there and, and just what's happened to us. And if you, if my maths are correct, when you started going to Burnley as a young lad, it will have been sort of around the, the late 60s. Um, so you saw, obviously, a club going from the glory days to a steady decline, unfortunately, through the 60s, the really grim times of the 70s right the way through the Orient game in the 80s. And then obviously you then saw us on the way out through the Chris Waddle years, the Stan Turnant years, the Steve Cottrell years, all the way through ITV Digital, and then suddenly to this amazing new world that we're living in at the moment. Mm. If we concentrate on what I like to call it as, as life before Daesh, um, what from that era, from your younger days, is there a particular time as being a Burnley fan that, you know, all the nostalgia comes out and, and really, really gets you in terms of memories? It's probably, I mean, the thing with me was that when I was first started to go, I was like, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight. And then when, was, when I was 11, we moved away to Leicester. Um, and actually, it was probably then that I realised that, that it was the Burnley thing was really big. Yeah. In me. So when I was a teenager, sort of in my mid teens, I started to, you know, hitchhike to games. Oh wow. Um, and, and and so that was kind of, you know, that would be what was then born fifty seven, sixty seven, seventy it was around the kind of I guess it was Paul Fletcher, Leighton James, Martin Dobson, it was that kind of era. Um, and that's when I feel that I really – that was my sort of era. I mean, mm. If I look at my strips, I've got quite a few Burnley strips. My favourite strip ever, and fun enough, I associate it with Mike Summerby. It was the v, it's the V. You know the V on the, the – you've got the claret and then you just – On the neck. On the V on the neck, yeah, right. Yeah, I love chest. that. And I think that that sort of was the, an era that I really – yeah, I really feel that, that, that I – it sort of cemented my love. I've got to tell you, by the way, when I was at school in Leicester, I never, ever, 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 ever took my scarf off, ever. Amazing. What a hero. <laughs> we, never, going to school in Leicester, though, obviously Leicester are, are a town team as well, and the people in Leicester will have the same connection to their club. Was there never a temptation being so far away from Burnley to go and watch the local club or change allegiance at that point? Well, the, well, I, I did go and watch Leicester every now and then, and I, and I, I remember a couple of times I went to watch uh, Forest as well. But and I like watching football, right? So don't get me wrong; yeah. I, I didn't go along and think, "Oh, this is really, this is really boring." But but it wasn't the same. It really just it wasn't the same. And so what I found then was that living in Leicester, the one good thing about it in terms of following football is it meant that actually there was quite a lot of good away games I could get to, whether that was London, whether that was in the Midlands. So I actually ended up going to quite a lot of away games. Yeah. And, and also I was really lucky at the school. I had a I had a teacher called Mr. Mason who was a he was a German teacher. Um and he was a big Burnley fan. So he used to go to want to go to games as well. So sometimes he'd drive me to games. Um so yeah, that that was the period when I really felt that what I'd 
always felt as a as a young kid growing up in Keithley, you know, I'm a Burnley supporter. It became something much bigger. Yeah, the, the love affair starts, and it, and it, like I said before, it gets you, doesn't it? I think one of the notes that I made when I was looking at this, when I was just thinking about just the the career that you've had and and the the opportunities that you've been afforded through your life, the challenges it must have been and probably continues to be to actually get to see live games, and, and it's something that's on all of our minds at the moment because we are restricted in watching live football. Mm. Um, I guess the hitchhiking story is hilarious but I don't know if there is any but was there any particularly hilarious days where you had to overcome and battle the elements to get to a Burnley game? There's two that come to mind for that one is we played away at Carlisle and I had I went I was living in Leicester uh I went to Keithley or was it Burnley? I think I went to Keithley to meet up with Pete Laughlin and I, and we got a bus either from Keithley or from Burnley and we went to Carlisle. I had two shoes. One was called Cochran and one was called Smith. I named my shoes after Burnley players. Um, I had a coat called Nobby, which was named after Peter Noble. Um, anyway, Coch- when we scored, <laughs> when we scored, we had a—I don't know why—but we had a huge turnout that night, and we—we we, I think they gave us the side of the ground. I mean, I, this could be sort of you know vague memory, but we—I I remember not being behind the goal. We were in the side, and we scored a goal, and in the celebration, right, I lost one of my shoes. Oh no! I lost Cochrane. I was going to say, which one was it? I feel, I feel attached. Cochran was, Terry Cochran was the right foot <laughs> because he was the right winger. And in the madness and the melee, my shoe went off. So, And I was looking around for my shoe for the rest of the game, and I thought, well, I'll have, I'll have to wait <laughs> till the end, right? So I had to wait for everybody to leave the ground, and my shoe wasn't there. So oh, no! Somebody had made off with my bloody shoe. Meanwhile... I'd taken so long to get out of the ground. The coach had gone. Oh, no. The gone without me. So you've got one shoe on and you've got got no ride on. And I'm hitchhiking back from Carlisle. (laughs) Oh, God, Carlisle as well. Yeah, it's a long way. So that's one when I went. But the other one that that came to mind when you were talking is actually when I was working in Downing Street and we're doing the Northern Ireland peace process. The Scunthorpe game, right? Mickey Mellon and Glenn Little goals. There was no way in the world that I was going to miss that. Oh, no. No, definitely not. So I remember at one point, we, and we were at Hillsborough Castle, and the, the really quite intense negotiations. And Bertie Ahern, the Irish Prime Minister, who's a big, quite, quite a big football fan, big Man United fan, and I knew that he had a ticket for the Newcastle-Man United game. And I said, Bertie, listen, I've got to get out of here. We can't let this thing go on to the Saturday. It's just impossible. We've got to, we've got to, you know, you've got to set a definitive. <laughs> anyway, but what I mean, actually, as it happened, the talks did go on, and I did leave early. It's the only time I felt the dereliction of duty to the government. I left early. Oh wow! But I had to that, get there. 
that was such that game we were all um we were all at Turf Moor I was I was with my dad and they'd opened the what's now the James Hargreaves stand and they'd put this massive great big screen on the pitch and because it was Burnley back then and we didn't you know we weren't as slick as we are now it was just terrible and it kept cutting out so we we were everybody all had their headphones on in the stands and yeah that that was that was a great day to to think about where you were where we were I think that's uh that's a very stark difference for that one yeah no it was and also it was it was people wanted to be there and actually Scunthorpe's yeah. quite a small ground but that was that was a fantastic day it really was yeah it really was there's there's some real there's some real moments and, and you know people talk about about your love of your club and and what it is about football that gets you and when we when we do talks like this and you speak to people and, and I love asking people what their favorite memories are about certain mm. games because it just triggers some key moments and you you're instantly catapulted back to that moment and how you felt and mm. I got goosebumps already just thinking about that Scunthorpe game it's it's incredible um which which brings us on to the, the big one in recent times and how we um move away from the old times of Burnley in the earlier days to where we are now and that is of course the playoff final at Wembley um I always ask everybody this because it's such in in our modern game it's such a key defining moment but where were you on that day and did you ever see that moment ever happening for us um well I was there at the game um it was my birthday actually May the 25th oh wow yeah um Funny enough, it was one of those games that even Fiona, my partner, who isn't really into football at all, but she wanted to go as well. Um, and the, the whole family were there. Um, yeah, that was a great day. Did I ever see it coming? Yeah, I think I probably did. Um, I think I always felt that Burnley were... You know, once, once we'd got through the Orient game and once we'd started that kind of climb back and once we got into that kind of, you know, into the championship. I always thought there was a chance. I always yeah. thought there was a chance. I think what's happened since then has been has been amazing. I've got to say, by the way, you talk about memories. My I actually enjoyed the semi-final at Reading as much as any game that season. The, the, yes. the leg at Reading. That was that was just that was another one, by the way. I had to get back from Belgium for that one. Oh wow, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Was that was that another hitchhiking with one shoe? No, or was I, that didn't, a bit I got, I got the Eurostar. Oh yeah, yeah, you've gone up in the world by then. For sure, that, that was definitely not not hitchhiking with with poor shoe. I feel I feel really invested emotionally in that poor lost shoe. Yeah, I feel do you like, know what though? It was a really bad shoe as well. It was like I don't know. Do you remember those shoes that Noddy Holder used to wear? That, like, <laughs> it was it was it was not a good shoe. It really. Wasn't. It is, but there's an emotional attachment. I still feel so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Obviously, you, you've touched on there about what's happened since then, and, and I think you're right. I think it only takes one shot at the Premier League. You just need that one chance for a season. And, and recently we've seen a lot of clubs who've taken that opportunity and, and had their shot at the Premier League. Um, but I think one thing that maybe did take us all surprise is, is particularly in the last 10 years, what an established club we've been and and essentially the, the fortunes are experiencing at the moment. And many people, of course, credit that to the man at the helm at the moment. And you don't see in the game much anymore this manager who is so integrated in a club who deals with management from top to bottom and off the pitch and, and you know behind the scenes and, and the, the players themselves. Do you credit Deitch completely with, with everything that's happened? I, I guess what I'm getting at is, is just how important is he in your eyes to the current successes that we are experiencing? I think, I mean, he's he's fundamental. I mean, I, I've got to know him really well and I, I like him. I think he's a great guy. And uh, I think he's, 
I think he's somebody who suffers in a way because of his his image. You know, the, and when I say image, I mean literally the the kind of how he looks and how he sounds and how he speaks. And um, I mean, you know, I, I, one of my favourite chants in recent years is that thing we did, 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 did anti football. Oh, when I love that. <laughs> when we're playing, you know, at times really good football, and I think that. No, Sean deserves enormous credit, and um, I think he's—I think he's somebody who's you know put his heart and soul into it. And I think also, I think his team around him—I think Ian Wone and Tony Loughran and Billy Mercer. I mean, we, you know, I've, I've been at the training ground with them at times when, when you can sense that that is a real team within a team. You know, that's the team yeah. driving the team. And I, I, you know, I really, really hope Sean stays for as, as as long as he possibly can because I think he's been fundamental to the to the success and I slightly worry with that thing you said you know now that we're an established club and I was remember a recent game that we were on Sky and Jamie Carragher was was doing the uh the the, the punditry and he's and he, and, he, and he said this thing he said you know you know there's no way Burnley gonna go down there's no way he says you know oh. Burnley <laughs> And I'm thinking, you just don't know what it's like, you know. No. <laughs> it's like you can't say that because – and I, I, I think that we've become established in, as a Premier League club in part because year after year after year we've defied gravity. Yeah, we have. Um, you know, and, I, yeah. and I think a lot of that is down to him just getting so much out of the out of the players. And even even in recent weeks when it's been, you know, it's been really tough and um, you've had all the – that, that you know, it's, it's just not been easy, and 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 yet you can see the you can see the players giving it all, you know. Yeah. Even I mean, like last the game against Brighton recently, I thought you know there was a lot of moaning on social media, but you know, I I just thought that was a team that got its back against the wall and they were digging in, and it was impressive. yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think I think one of the things that. I think it is bothering people at the moment is, is that we always, we keep feeling like we are punching above our weight and people keep reminding us that we are punching above our weight. And that's really, really tough um, because you're constantly feeling like you're having to prove yourself. And and when I say established, you know, this is our fifth season in the league now. And we've, we've finished in Europe, one of those. We finished 10th last year. Mm. And people seem to be surprised that suddenly we're in a relegation zone. And, and actually for us, every single season is probably going to be, at least at the start, a fight to avoid relegation. And then let's see how much further we can get on. Um, I kind of want to pick up on the points you were saying about hoping that the diet stays as long as it does, because clearly, obviously, we all do. Uh, and there's been quite a lot of, of press reported this season and a lot of talk about this fallout that he supposedly had with with the Mike Garlic and and the potential irreparable relationship that they've now got. And that of course has then been brought in with the potential uh, takeover as well. Um do you think that's been unsettling? Do you think do you think that's that's played a part on the pitch? Because we know Daesh wants to be very calm and he wants to keep these players level headed. But surely that can't have helped his preparations. Well, I think that one of the things that, you know, I, I think he's a very good communicator, Sean. I think he, I think what he does on the media is good and and he's, he's always there. He's always very much as a kind of, you know, spokesman for the club and he, and he's not, he doesn't play games that a lot of managers play. And so, look, I think footballers are, they're, I've, I've got to know some of them reasonably well. And I, and I think that they, I think they're, you know, they're affected by it in the same way as anybody else is. 
but I don't. I think professional footballers are that. They're professional footballers, and yeah. So I, you know, whether I was thinking, for example, about you. I saw that interview recently with James Tarkovsky. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. About going away and what have you, but. I didn't feel that when he was playing against, he was still he was still top of the block stats, and he was, yeah. you know. So I, I I don't know is the honest answer, but I I I think that when you get what you have, I think at, at Burnley, obviously there's there's a lot going on off the field, and you know, hopefully that will be sort of sorted reasonably soon. But I think that I've always liked the fact that Burnley's felt like a kind of locally owned club. You know that the that you've you've had people that have been. Uh, Burnley fans who've been on the board and running the club, and maybe that's naive to think that in the Premier League of the modern age that that can be kept. But what I say is, in an ideal world for me, that would carry on. But if that has to change, if there is going to be a, a sale, then I do think that whoever's involved in that, you know, they're going to want to Sean Dyche to stay on. There's an absolutely no yeah. doubt to me about that. Um, and I think that's an important part of of, uh, of, of what will happen. Yeah. Um, picking up on a couple of points you just made then about reputation and image rights, I find this really fascinating. And there's a couple of things here, one concerning Sean Dyche and one concerning players, particularly James Tarkovsky. Um, we we know we're not fashionable and we know we seem to, to be the whipping boys, and on, particularly on social media and in the press. And, and Sky is sometimes very guilty of, of looking down at us and being a little bit disrespectful to, to what we want to do here. Um, I think Sean Dyche seems to have fallen out of the favourites list whenever top six jobs or quite high profile jobs come up. Um, I think a few years ago, particularly when the likes of Everton and Leicester jobs were coming up, we were terrified we were going to lose him. And he seems to have fallen out of favour in terms of odds for, for getting poached for those jobs. And I read a really, really interesting article about this. Forgive me, I can't remember where I picked it up from, so I can't reference it. But it was it was along the lines that he'd, that Dyche is a victim of outstaying his welcome at Burnley and that he's now become so synonymous with the club and his style is so associated with what's considered boring anti-football that is now no longer an attractive commodity and I just thought that was really unfair. Yeah but listen I mean you know I think it's probably good that you can't remember where you read it I mean I, I, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean my, my, my reaction to that sort of stuff is kind of who cares it's like yeah I mean if I do think it's interesting that if you think about, you know, when you were going through all the managers, you didn't mention Eddie Howe. Eddie Howe. Oh God, yeah, I forgot. Eddie Howe was the manager before Sean. Yeah. For a while, whenever there was a never mind Everton, Leicester, Newcastle, whenever there was a kind of top four, top six job going, Eddie Howe would was you know, and his name would be in there in the mix. Yeah. Now it never happened, but you'd have to say. If you looked at who had been the more successful manager at Burnley, you'd have to say Sean Dyche, not Eddie Howe. Yeah. You know, you look at what's happened. Eddie's gone. Uh, Sean's still there. Now, I, I, I think that what I mean by the image thing, I think that, you know, I don't think we get that bad a deal, by the way. I think most clubs who are not Liverpool, not Man United, not Man City, not Chelsea, most clubs think they don't get a fair deal from the broadcasters. We're no different to you know, to West Ham, uh, Brighton. I mean, they all say we, the whole thing about last on match of the day and all that stuff. So we're in that that group. But I, I actually think that, I think we do get taken seriously by the sports media. I think Sean is taken seriously. But I think you're right. I think that I remember when um, 
was it ever when it was at Everton? There was a lot of sort of negative stuff about Sean on on social media, but there was also a lot of positive stuff. Mm. I think the point is that yes, Burnley has got a reputation. Yes, you and I would agree that that reputation is unfair. But I actually do think that what he has done for the club and the club generally, I think we are actually respected and quite popular. I mean, you know, the, it always makes me laugh when that that when we sing that song, no one likes us, we don't care. I think people do like us. Yeah. You know. No, I think you're probably right, actually. I think maybe I'm, I'm guilty sometimes of being oversensitive because I just like my emotions and I want people to like us. And so when I hear the I'm, – I'm terrible at, at doing that thing where I'll always remember the negative side and I'll forget the positive. So No, I think it's, it's like, you know, I, I, I think the thing about – I remember – Particularly that year when we're in when we're in Europe, and look, when I get in, say if I'm out and about in London, and I get on a, to get on the tube or I get in a taxi or whatever, and and and, and people, complete strangers talk to me. Now it used to be, eighty percent of people would want to talk to me about politics. I reckon I get as many people now want to talk to me about Burnley, and certainly taxi drivers. Virtually the first thing they always say is, they "Like your manager." Oh, brilliant! I do, yeah. and I think that you know, and 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 when we were in Europe, you know, um, there was a lot of people. You know, I was getting a lot of messages from a lot of people saying, "God, I really hope you do well in Europe." And you know, I just think it was. I I don't think we should uh, underestimate how. I think we've seen pretty positively, and and by the way, don't judge life according to who says what on social media. Honestly, it bears no relation to the real world. Yeah, no. Well, that's something that I definitely want to come on to next, particularly when when we're talking about about. Uh, the, the well the, the world in social media compared to how it was 10 years ago so we'll come on to that in a moment um very quick question then on this same topic um do you think and I'm probably going to say you probably think not actually but I'll be interested to see why you think this is um in a similar thread um Burnley players apart from Nick Pope so I'm particularly looking at, at Ben Mee and James Tarkovsky consistently being overlooked for the England squad um I'd perhaps unfairly or incorrectly put that down to image again I wonder whether you given what you've just said about Daesh, you maybe disagree with that. But can you shed any light on why you think they're being overlooked? Um, I mean, it's funny. If Gareth Southgate, who comes to a lot of our games, and um, we, have, we have a running joke because I, 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 I text him after virtually every game. And when I see him at the grounds, I, you know, I, I will say to him, why have, why have you never picked Matt, Matt Loughton? He's far better than Trent Alexander-Arnold. <laughs> 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 And also, when, when uh, I remember when Ashley Barnes was that talk about him going to Austria, I said, "Come oh, on, Southgate, get in fast, get, get in fast." Up. <laughs> um, look, I don't know. I, th- I think it's hard. I, th- I, th- I think for the England manager, you know, he, he's he's building a team, isn't he? He's building a squad, mm-hmm. but he's built. He's he's going to be building it around certain key players. So he's look. He's just made a judgment that the people that he's picking are the people that he wants for that team. I think he. Look, he, the fact that he comes to Burnley as often as he does, he's obviously, I think he likes the fact we've got so many English players, but also he's, you know, he gave Jack Cork a go, didn't he? Tarkovsky's given a go, Ben Mee, yeah. yeah, maybe age, I don't know. Um, I don't know is the honest answer, but I don't think, I, I certainly don't think for one second that Gareth Southgate holds against them, the fact that they're from Burnley. No. Yeah. I Excellent. That makes me feel a lot better. I really don't think so. Good. I feel reassured. Well, let's let's dive straight. Oh, by the into... way, let me tell you, I I sat one game. I can't remember what game it was, but not that long. Some last season, there was one game where I ended up sitting next to 
uh, A.D. Boothroyd and Gareth was there as well. And A.D. Boothroyd was, he, he was, he was waxing lyrical, as they say, about Dwight, o- Dwight McNeil at the time. Oh, excellent. Well, of course, he's he is pushing his way through the England ranks. So I do fully expect that he will he will make it into the seniors because he's trained with them as well. He has. Tra- I think he's trying to fast track him a little bit. So. Mm. So, yeah, I think I think poor one of the one of the biggest disappointments for me in our transfer policies in, in failing to bring in um, a few more players is that poor Dwight is just screaming at desperately needing a break. Um, mm. The poor lad's trying his best, and, and Burnley fans, you know, what Burnley fans are like we'll always do this, but you know, he's getting a bit of grief at the moment from fans saying, "Oh, I can't remember when he asked a good game." You just think, Christ, he's a young mm. lad, give him a break. Um, so yeah, I do, I do hope that that soon, to hopefully in January, we get um, a bit of cash and we get uh, get some cover for the poor lad and give him a break. Um, otherwise, he's going to be on his legs. Um, let, let's pick straight up then and, and start going back into what we, we briefly touched on then and we're talking about social media and image and all sorts of things because of course one of the things you're very passionate about and you speak so eloquently about is mental health and and campaigning for awareness of, of people and just protection for people's um, mental health status um at the moment life is tough um, we're in the middle of a global pandemic we're all stuck indoors and we are being restricted from being able to see loved ones and in terms of our world of where we are at the moment um, live sport is off the table and for a lot of people Saturday afternoons or however however it may be you know seeing their, their teams play live the football routines pre and post is, is having an enormous effect on people um, I guess what are your well what are your thoughts on fans getting back to the stadiums as, as quickly as we can are you all for it now are you understanding of the cautions and the resistance to get fans back in stadiums where do you sit in this subject um hmm. I mean it's, look I, let, let, let's come come on to the pandemic and the management of it in a minute but have do I think that the that football is suffering as a result of fans not being in the stadium, absolutely 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really interesting, actually. I've realised that it's not football I'm missing. It's Burnley and it's yeah. crowds. Yeah, it's um, a routine. I mean, apart, from, apart from the Burnley games, you know, I'm not watching that much on television. Yeah. Um, I'm, you know, and do you know what? I thought Manchester United made a massive boo-boo right at the start of the pandemic. Because they put a huge banner behind the 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 um, you know the end the away end corner, yeah. And a huge banner across that, that. I can't remember what that stands called, but a huge banner across it. And it was a quote. It's actually a quote from Jock Steen, but they said it was Matt Busby. Um, and it, it was it was the old the famous quote. You know, football without fans isn't football. And I thought, blimey, blimey what on earth have you got that up for there? Because as soon as I saw that, I thought you're absolutely right, and I turned over. Yeah, um, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm not enjoying football as much as I was. Oh, um, that's so true. We're not. No, and so, 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 and and until the fans come back, so you know, like sometimes on a Sunday afternoon, I might be sitting on the sofa and I'm channel hopping, and I'll go through, and there might be a Scottish game and a Dutch game, mm. a German game, and a French game, and the thing that draws you into it is the atmosphere. Yeah, it's like Borussia Dortmund against Bayern Munich. You know there's good atmosphere. You're going to watch it. Yes, there's going to be good football. If it's Celtic Rangers, you want to watch it. If it's an empty stadium and the football's not that great, you're not going to watch it. No. So I think football's got a really a, a tough job. And you know the other thing is that we, 
I mean, I do think our government has completely mishandled the whole thing, but I won't get too political on, on the whole. But, but when I saw the other day New Zealand playing Australia at rugby and they had a crowd back in yeah. um, because they've handled it better. So, yeah, we have got to get back to crowds as soon as we can. I've got to say, by the way, the one sport that I've, I think is – don't ask me why, but rugby league seems the intensity of the sport is just the same. Whereas I feel, you know, I, I actually went to the, uh, when we played West Ham um, and, you know, in, in the, 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 the one of the first fanless games, as it were, and I did the commentary for with Phil Bird for Claret's player. And it was really interesting because we were winning 1-0, about five minutes to go, and West Ham got a corner. And it was, David Moyes was going absolutely berserk on the touchline. Because these players, they were just sort of ambling up for this call. Yeah. Whereas if there was a crowd there, you'd have felt that intensity. Yeah, absolutely. You feel the pressure, you feel them getting behind you and willing you to want to just like really go for it. And we, we, how many times have we seen that at turf as well? Even when we are, you know, just there's just one goal in it and we see our players just throwing everything they can right to, you know, right to the, to the corner and, you know, even goalkeepers coming up at the end and things like that. And I'm... I'm the same as you. I feel very disengaged with it at the moment. Mm. I feel like, and it is, and especially, you know, I'm, I'm still lucky enough that I, I go to the football with my dad and we've had a season ticket together since I was a child. And I think I've seen him twice since March because he doesn't live in the same town as me. Mm. And just that, that whole routine is having a real impact on us. It really is. And, and I do think um, it just, to me, we talk about the handling of certain situations. The, the, the justifications for not having fans back in the grounds yet doesn't make sense to me. So until somebody gives me a logical explanation that I can understand, then I don't accept it. Well, I, I mean, I, I can sort of get it in that, you know, it's it's the, it's the I mean, you've seen, for example, I was watching a, a game, I think it was in Norway, where they had, they, they had, you could go as long as you were with people from your same household and you sat three seats apart from, from the next person and every second mm. row was empty. And it meant that they had about, I don't know, in a stadium of about 20,000, they had about 4,000 people in. But actually it did at least create a bit of atmosphere. Yeah. And I guess what people are worried about is the, it's the traveling, it's the socializing, it's the meeting up beforehand. It's all that stuff. So mm, yeah. I see why they're, but you know, I think it's partly because we, you know, in in the in Britain, we we balls it up so much at the start that I think I think we're still paying a very heavy price. Yeah, we're always playing catch up to try and sort to unwind decisions that were made months ago. Yeah, no, I completely understand. to hear you talk about social media because um you know and, and maybe moving away a little bit from football as well into one of the million other areas of your life that we could have chosen to talk about on this podcast it was very hard to narrow it down um social media is is just very quickly become part and parcel of life and you said to me early on in the show you know just don't believe everything that you hear on social media and and it's quite interesting really because as quite depressingly as well but as a, a female um, football fan and somebody who puts football, sorry, fan-led content out there. 
I'm often targeted with the trolling and the abuse and 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 sometimes it feels a little bit as well that I you know I want to sometimes put tweets out and say guys it's not my fault we lost get you know can we stop blaming me you know why am I getting things thrown at me um and it was interesting to hear you obviously talk quite candidly about social media being non-reliable a source and just don't listen to it and I wondered how your political career I think this is probably the, the, the field to move into it's probably most relevant clearly in the the political peak around the 1996 election and around the the success and the Blair victory social media just wasn't a thing then and so I guess not just in football but in life in general how has social media changed our viewpoint and how we communicate our feelings because it's it must be a completely different landscape for you now well it is and it isn't I mean it's um look it's it's definitely changed the way that Politics, political communications, no mm-hmm. doubt about that. And, and, you know, the, just look at the fact that I don't think, tr- I'm not sure Trump would ever have become president if he hadn't been able to build that massive following using yeah. media, um, you know, feeling no compunction about lying, dividing people and all the stuff that he does. But I would say that, you know, Joe Biden's election um, in recent weeks is, is, is he, Yes, they were using social media effectively as well, but they were also using the more, if you like, the more old-fashioned parts of a campaign, which is really just about, you know, core basic strategy. And I think that the problem with with the and by the way, I'm not I'm not wholly negative about social media. So social media can be incredibly um you know, like when I a lot of the campaigning work that I do and you mentioned mental health agenda. A lot of that I do through social media. Mm. Um, if I'm, you know, if I'm promoting a book, I use it. Social media is an incredibly effective tool to do that. And also, I think that what I worry about in football, and this is why, I mean, look, Sean Dyche is not on social media, and I think I'm, sh- I'm sure he wishes that the players weren't on social media, and I'm sure he wishes it didn't exist, but it does exist. And I think you've got to, you know, in a sense, if you've got to educate uh, people in any walk of life, in any uh, public position. You mentioned Dwight McNeil. Why, you know, Dwight McNeil's a young guy. Um, He's very good at football. And yet we build them up too much in my mind to to, to knock them down. And that's why I will will stick, stick up for footballers. I don't think they're, I've never bought this idea, by the way, um, that footballers are role models just because they're football footballers. I mean, if you like, Ben Mee adopted the role of a role model when he came out and talked about that banner in the way that he did, and I admired sure. and respected him for it. Uh, Marcus Rashford, in what he's doing at school meals at the moment, free school meals, he's become a role model because he's decided that's what he wants to do. But just because you're a footballer doesn't make you a role model. And I think that the the people should give footballers a lot more slack than they get. And then yeah. and I can even as I say that, I can hear people say, oh, these guys that are on 20 grand a week for kicking a ball. It's what they've always wanted to do. Uh, we're entitled to say whatever we like about them. Well, no, you're not. Yeah. Um, you're entitled yeah. to have a judgment. You're entitled to have a view. You're entitled to express that view. But I think that what I can't stand is when, when the mob, if you like, decides that its view is more important than the manager who actually knows these players, who actually yeah. knows what's making them tick, who knows whether they're going to go out there and perform. So 
I'm just much more of the view that don't take it. It's there. You've got to deal with it. But don't take it seriously and certainly don't let it define your, your, your own life and your own opinion of yourself. Yeah, no, that is that is so true. And I think it's it, I feel for the, the new generation of, of kids who are coming through now who've never known a life before social media, because from such a young age, they are immediately image conscious. They are aware of what of what their voice carries they are aware of 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 you know how they are perceived and job opportunities are judged often on their social media profiles as well opportunities arise and whole careers now are forged on on social media so they're they're the great sides of it but then it also gives a platform for hate and for um opinions that that potentially shouldn't really be forced down people's Mm. throats you know and it it, there's a very toxic side to it as well and and my hope is is that yeah my hope is is that the the people who are the kids who are growing up with it now who've never known any different will pave the way to forge it into a stronger medium than it is um I think you mentioned, obviously, then it was one thing I was desperately trying. I'm really glad you raised it because I really wanted to get your opinion on this without it being too awkward a, a segue into it. Um, what what on earth were your thoughts, with your political mind on now, what on earth were your thoughts during that week-long period of the US election with, and, and actually everything that's gone on since? Well, <laughs> I mean, I was really, 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 really rooting for Biden. Mm-hmm. I do think Trump's been a terrible influence on the world, not just in America, but right around the world. And um, so I was just stuck on the sofa for five days, just following it and writing about it and tweeting about it and and what have you. And obviously, I've got a lot of, you know, I've got a lot of friends in the Democrat Party that I was talking to. Um, and I think I think what ha- what's happened since is just underline what a terrible state the world is in and political debate is in that for the first time ever. A sitting president who's been democratically defeated is, you know, rampaging around the place, yeah. saying the whole thing is rigged. And of course, if you've got however many million followers he's got on Twitter, including people who will believe literally anything that he says, then it's a pretty, you know, it's a it's a pretty dangerous place to be. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like we play, let's say we play Leeds United and we lose two one, uh, but then Sean Dyche does the after match interview on the premise that we won three two. Yeah, like, you know, you you you've got to have some sort of acceptance of basic factual truth, and the fact is that he's lost the election, but he won't he won't acknowledge it. Yeah, it, it's just, it's just bizarre. I mean, I I certainly share your your views on him. I think he's been an awful influence, and and I I walk I got out of bed quite early on the Wednesday morning. I think I got up at about five, as as enough of the states were being called that we could start to see it. And I think the first thing I read when I um, opened up Twitter and I was kind of <laughs> blinking down to the living room was the exit the early exit polls had put quite a high percentage I think about 34 percent of, of Americans saying that that the economy was was the, the main thing that they were voting for and that instantly made me worried and think oh gosh because that's that's the, the that's his card that's what he he uses um and obviously they went downstairs and I think just as I switched the television on the Florida result had just been called and it did look initially in the early hours that that Trump had got in and I, I've just again been re-elected and I, I just I had this horrible sinking feeling that he was we were going to have the world was going to have to put up with a, a second term and 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 for me I think the biggest problem is is that this whole charade about voter fraud and um you know how the election was stolen from him the man's ego is making him 
he would rather put cast doubt in a democracy in the American people's minds than allow himself to admit that he lost an election fair and square. And I just think you were never fit to hold that office. You are such an egomaniac. Um, and I, and I, I'm the same as you. I, I was rooting for, for Biden, but I think if you will allow me to indulge a little bit on my own personal views on this, a lot of mine as well was, was Kamala Harris as well. To have a female mm. vice president so high up in such a high political office for me was... You know, it's not completely shattering the glass ceiling, but there's a great big hole in it. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it was. I was. I was interested just to see what your thoughts were, and I think they probably marry up with with everybody else's. Um, we are starting to come towards the end of our time together. So, there's a couple more points that I want to cover before we finish off with with a, a quite nice um, little quick fire round. Um, I'm. I was quite interested, and I, I don't think I'd realised this until I was researching for this interview. Just your writing career. Just how many books you'd written? Fourteen, now is it? Um, I listen. Reading and writing. I'm sure you've heard a million people saying this, but I would. I'd love to think I had um, a, a book in me one day, even if it was never published. Um, is that something that you are particularly passionate about? Is it a process that you find really rewarding? Um, I'm just counting them actually. I've one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, yeah, 14. Nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. Oh, it's a 16. Oh, my goodness. 17. No, it's 17 actually. Wow. Yeah. Gosh. I do write a lot. Of course, one of my favourite ones, Saturday Bloody Saturday, novel co written with Paul Fletcher. Mm. About football. It's not about Burnley, but it's kind of, it's got a lot of Burnley in it. Um, yeah, I, I do. I've, I've written all my life. I mean, I write when um, when I was a kid. I used to write all the time. I used to write songs. I used to write poems. I used to write letters to all my aunties in Scotland. I've, I've always been a kind of compulsive writer. And you know, there's a, a famous poem written by Marilyn Monroe called "Think in Ink," and I, I think in ink. Um, so yeah, and, I'm and going to read that straight after this. The new one. The new one's all about dealing with depression and mental health and I, I think I think a lot of the um yeah I, I order my mind by writing really I've always done that mm. what do you have a favorite or does it not work like that with books um I actually do like the new the the, the latest one a lot about depression because I feel it's like the others have been on a, a part of a kind of long journey to that as if you like my first novel was really important to me all in the mind and um and I guess the first one, the Blair Years, that was like a yes. huge, huge bestseller and uh, massive. Yeah, that was the one that everyone was waiting for. That was the that was um, the. That yeah, was the but, but you know, I I, it, I like them all, and I, and and you know, as we are on No Name Never, I, I I did enjoy writing a book with Paul Fletcher. That was good fun. Yeah, but he's a great guy. I've, I've met Paul a few times, and he is yeah, equally. I, I could talk to him for hours. He he's got some fascinating stories. <laughs> he's um, a good talker. Yeah, he is. I think one of the things that I was quite sad about around the ITV digital time was that his plans for the development of Turf Moor and that really ambitious plan he had for uh, the cricket field stand and the hotel mm. and, and everything it never came off. Mm. Um, I think that makes me quite sad that it just was a great idea at the wrong time and we never really had the ability to do it at the time. I think that yeah. would have been, been fantastic. Yeah. Um, let's move it very quickly then and just uh, re-summarise back to, to Burnley before we, before we finish off. Um, obviously, we, we touched on this at the beginning um this season's not really been the start we wanted for um we wanted sorry we hoped for mixing my sentences together um i know that this is going to be caveated heavily and it's a bit of a, a broad brush statement but do you think we're going to survive or do you think that this is going to be a horrible season where we inevitably 
face the chop? Um, no, I th- listen, I think we can survive. There's no doubt about that. I think, I think uh, you know, it's, the season's not started the way that anyone has would have wanted, but I, I still think you can see you can see quality there, and I agree with what you said earlier. I think that hopefully, once this um, sale happens, that there will be the kind of investment that this, that the manager and the squad need, and that then we can you know pick up. But it, look, it's going to be tough. There's no point denying that it's going to be tough, and uh, you, 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 we're already looking in and around those clubs. Uh, down the bottom and and but you know the the wonderful thing about the last few years is that you know we've had lots of matches where we've been a goal down and in years gone by when I was wearing those shoes you'd, <laughs> you might have thought oh god we're just not going to do this but the natural instinct at the moment is to think you know we can we're still in the game we can still do this and likewise I think with the season we're still in the season yeah. and we can you know we go on a run I, I can guarantee you at some point in this season we will we will take some points off the top clubs. Yeah. And so, no, I don't think we should be too despondent, but I think we I think we all recognise that the you know the, the the last transfer window, I mean Dale Stevens, fine, a good player and all that, but you know, I think we were all hopeful that it'd been a bit more than that. Yeah. Uh, and you know, once we get into the next one, let's just see where it goes. But I, I don't think we should be too despondent. I've yeah. also got to thank you, by the way, I love the championship. Oh, me too. I really do. I think. I think for me, it, it's just the profile and the fan. Because we don't have um, financial investment outside of TV money, it, is, it makes such a difference to our to our oh, books. Yeah. Um, yeah. We have to be staying in the Premier League. It's too yeah, important. Yeah. No, the championships are fantastic, fantastic yeah. league. Um, I love it immensely. The, the competitiveness and the fact that the fact that unlike the Premier League, anybody can do it. That the, the championship is anybody's race from day one, and it's it's yeah. fantastic. I love it. Um, very quickly, uh, do you have a favourite player? What current player at all time? Yes, uh, well, both. Let's do both. <clears throat> I think my favourite current player would be Ashley Barnes. No, Ashley Westwood and Ashley Barnes. It's the two of them. I'm actually in a little WhatsApp group with the two of them. The Ashley, my Ashley. No. Yeah. Oh my god, I'm so jealous. <laughs> no, I think I, I, I think they. I, I really. I, yeah, but I look at every single player now, and you can make a case for all of them. Um, yeah, true. So, but yeah, if I had to pick, if I had to pick one, I'd probably go Barnesy. Oh, excellent! I love it. Um, and all time, I'm going to say Paul Fletcher because it's not true. Oh. <laughs> excellent! It's because, it's because whenever, whenever I say Leighton James, he goes. So, excellent. I think the best, the most. I think Martin Dobson was the my favourite player to. You know, Leighton James was the player that excited me most. Yeah. But I think in terms of watching quality football, I loved watching Martin Dobson. Yeah, Martin Dobson's one of my dads, actually. He always says that his was his favourite. That era era definitely was my probably kind of peak time. And then, you know, I think of the, uh, I think think Joey Barton did an amazing job for us. Oh, God, yeah, he did. Um, He's doing really well managerially as well, which I think we all expected he would do. There's a lot of players I can say, but if I'm only allowed one, I've probably got to go. I'm going to go. I'm going to go. <coughs> Leighton James, Paul Fletcher. Leighton James, Paul Fletcher. 
<laughs> okay, we'll let you off with that one. You can have that one. Um, right, let, let's finish off this session with a very light-hearted, quick-fire round, just designed to, to finish us on a on a relaxed note. Um, it's an or question. You've got to pick which one you want. Okay. Um, and yeah, let's see where where you stand. So, number one, meat and potato pie or hot dog? Oh, not big one either, to be honest. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, um, um, if I had to have one, it would be meat and potato pie. Yeah, meat and potato pie. Yeah. Excellent. Um, this next one, I think you've probably already answered, but Ashley Barnes or Ashley Westwood? Oh, I haven't really answered that, have you? Um, uh, I love them both. You can't. You've got to pick one. Barnes. Okay, well done. Um, <laughs> Sean Dyche or Stan Turnant? Oh, that's impossible. <laughs> they're, both big, they're both good mates. You've got to pick one. You've got to pick one. I'm not picking one. I love Stan to bits. That's all I'm saying. Okay, exactly. Uh, finally, then, and this is this is. Um, I don't know if you'll do this because you've not really been watching them, but in terms of the uh, televised football, do you pick the crowd noise or do you pick the dugout? Oh, I, I, I hate the crowd noise. Oh, really? Oh, that surprises oh. me. So oh, you no, listen to them it. swearing. Yeah, I love that. I love that. No, I, 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 do you know why I don't like the crowd noise? I don't think we should allow ourselves to get accustomed to watching football without crowds. Oh, that's interesting. And so if you have the fake crowd, I've actually been amazed about how many people say, oh, do you know what? I quite like the crowd noise. And I'm saying, oh, no, you shouldn't listen to it because I, I want to listen to the, the – and when I went to that game at West Ham that I, that I commentated on with Phil Bird. I didn't enjoy it as much as I would normally enjoy a Burnley win away, you know. I really didn't. Oh, really? Just because you were stuck with what you were doing? Yeah, but just like I couldn't you could you can't let yourself go, you can't get into it, you can't get it's not the same and, and so look I, I know we have to kind of endure it. And I think I think I think a lot of the players feel this as well. It's, I think they I think some players actually maybe enjoy not having that sense of the pressure. I do think that the referees have maybe, I think the, the referee probably has improved without a crowd. Um, but I just feel, no, I, 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 when I'm watching a game on telly, I have it without the crowd noise because I don't want to get used to watching football without crowds. That is a really important point and I am definitely going to keep that one. Um, final question then, who was your, who has been to date your favourite GQ interview? Oh, that's a good question. Um, Oh my God! Who's my, my favourite best one? The one that got the, probably was the biggest coup, as it were, was was Prince William talking yeah. about himself. That was a big one. Um, actually, the one I think that's got is right up there in terms of the viewing figures. And me interviewing Tony Blair was quite a quite a quite a thing. And I also I really enjoyed doing the Archbishop of Canterbury. Oh God, yeah, that was good. Yeah. Oh gosh, I just blasphemed. I can't believe I did that. I went into the <laughs> straight to How was that? Oh God, how was that? My response. <laughs> Excellent. Well, let's wrap up there because unfortunately, and this is all I've got time for, and I just I could talk to you all evening. So, um, as a well, I just want to finish off just by uh, letting our listeners know as, as as a massive thank you for your time this evening. Um, the None and Ever team are going to be making a donation to charity um, in your name to say thank you for you giving up your time to talk to us tonight. Um, do you want to tell your listeners which charity you've chosen? Uh, it's uh, it's called the Maytree Respite Centre, and it's um, it's the country's only sanctuary for the suicidal. Uh, and it's in is a little house in North London, and I've seen the amazing work they do in 
pulling people back from the brink. So, um, yeah, the Maytree, that's my cause. Excellent. What a fantastic cause. And listeners, we will get you details as well and we'll put those in our social media feeds. So if anybody um, has the means and would like to donate as well um, as, as, as uh, if they've listened to this, this podcast, then please do support that charity. Um, Alistair, thank you so much. This my has pleasure. been an absolute it. pleasure. And best of luck with with all of your future endeavours, of which there will be many of them. And uh, fingers crossed towards the end of this season, we'll be celebrating another Premier League season. Um, Listeners, that's all we've got time for this week. Um, As ever, our thanks go to producer Matt for editing this podcast and putting it out there, Um, to Band Joyce, who provide our music, and finally to you, the listener, for downloading and listening to this podcast. Your support is very much appreciated and we would not be here without you. Um, Dave and I will be back on Friday with the preview show, looking ahead to the weekend's game, which is Monday, I think now. Um, And the rest of the team will be back on Tuesday to um, analyse what happened this weekend and get back into all things claret this has been the non and ever podcast i've been after bromley until next time Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.